Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 40, The Renters, where we learned about the Melgar's renters, John and Claudia, and a possible connection between Claudia and Sinead Gonzalez. Now we scoured social media and emails, and we've got a lot of content to get to, and we appreciate everybody bearing with us while Bob is on the road. We're going to make this recording sound as good as we can. Yes, so we're recording this remotely as we've done before. I'm out in Los Angeles right now doing some post-production work and a little bit of filming for the West Memphis 3 television series. And instead of bringing the entire mobile studio, I'm actually recording on what's called a PDR. It's a, it's just a lavalier mic. It's a high-quality microphone. However, it does not sound the same as our studio mic. So if this doesn't sound like our usual sound quality, that's why. It's just because of the mobile setup we have right now. But Mike, I know that you're going to work your magic and it's going to sound beautiful when we're done. I'm blushing, Bob. All right, let's get into these questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. Our first question comes from Lauren. How long were Claudia and John together? It seems like Ebony moved out earlier that year, but that doesn't mean they weren't involved before that. That's a difficult question to answer because we don't know the answer to it. This is going to be a theme with John and Claudia and probably a lot of the questions that we have here is that there wasn't any proper investigation done. And again, as I said in the episode, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that John and Claudia had anything to do with the murder. There's certainly a connection there between Claudia and Sinead and her family. But remember, we don't know for sure that Sinead and her family had anything to do with the murder. These are all just people of interest who should be investigated. But because of the failure to follow these leads, we don't have an answer to a lot of these questions. We do know is Ebony 
moved out sometime prior to June of 2012. And we know that because when she moved out, she actually filed a criminal mischief complaint in June because John had vandalized the house. So, you know, the other issue we have is that John's either lying or misremembering just about everything he says. He flip-flops, he changes the story. He says that she moved out in May, but then he says she was coming back to clean stuff up. So we don't really know. We know that Ebony was out of the house by June because she had already went through the process to file this criminal mischief complaint against John prior to that. We also know now that the reason that Ebony left is that, I'll I'll quote it exactly from the source that I got it from, is that John beat the hell out of her. And she moved out. There was a domestic dispute situation. It was also confirmed by the neighbors that were there, that there was police involvement. That doesn't seem to be on anybody's record, but that happened. And that's when Ebony moved out in 2012. Uh, We don't know when Claudia moved in exactly. So the way we do these background checks is there's databases that we pull from that has to do with if someone registers for a driver's license, they register to vote, they register for utilities to put like the electric bill or the gas bill or whatever in your name. That all gets put into the databases that we have access to when we do our background checks. And that that's how we know for certain that Claudia, the per- correct Claudia, was living in that house because she had that house as her registered address on multiple sources in at least February of 2012. But uh, that doesn't add up with what John is saying, which is that Ebony didn't move out until, I think he said, May of 2012 in his interview, if Claudia was already living there. Maybe. Maybe Claudia was. Claudia is significantly younger than John and Ebony. So she could have been there at that point as well. And they could have both been there at the same time. Or Ebony could have moved out well before that. It's just hard to say. All right, Robin has three questions. And Bob, you might have covered this a bit, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is the written evidence of Claudia living in the house? Well, right. Like I said, those government sources and utility sources and things like that are how we know that this particular Claudia, the actual Claudia, was living in the dress or using that address during that time frame from like February through December of 2012. But that was initially identified by the private investigator working for Nick Oessi. So, so I have access to that information now through the, the background searches that I do. But they had investigated this back then, and, and they knew that this, this young Hispanic female, Claudia, was living there, and they, were, they confirmed that through searching through the, um, the databases, the government databases and everything. And then, you know, if you ran a, which is one of the things they did, because they did it in multiple layers, if they run a background check on the property address, then that returns back the residence of that address. And again, that's all based on, that's not, you know, what's in those background searches isn't, you know, the neighbor says this person's living there. That's all official documentation that the person was in fact living there. Okay. And her next question is, how did Jim's tools get in the rental house garage as noted in the police report? Well, this is another, uh, one thing that we're doing here in our investigation of these alternate suspects as we're moving on with our investigation is to try to weed out fact from fiction and misconceptions. And that's one of the misconceptions. So, shocker, that's not accurate in the police report. And then that's been kind of spun out through all of our message boards and comments and things like that from all of the listeners because it was documented that way. 
But the reality is John did not leave Jim's tools in the garage. That would be a massive red flag. That would be a huge piece of evidence. If things were stolen, they were put there. And then everybody has all these theories about it. But here's what actually happened. John left a ton of crap in the garage. There was trash everywhere. The garage was full of stuff. When Liz went into the house to try to fix it up after he was gone, she brought the tools into the garage. She's the one that took them there, her and uh, whoever was helping her do the work and things like that. They put those there. So, so, so those tools weren't found. They were found in the garage when Curazal finally went to look into the garage to look into the rental property. But remember, that was months later. So, so when uh, Liz had talked to John, she found his reaction strange. And then he wasn't paying rent. And then he finally left. And then she went in and the house was vandalized. And she saw the stab marks and the blood. She calls Curazal, wants him to come investigate. That was in January, February. Curazal didn't actually go to the house until May. So it was months later. So in between there, Liz had moved tools in there for that. So those tools were not found there. They were not left there by John. Liz took them to the house. They, she kept them. She said that uh, the back of the garage was full of all their stuff. And then Liz just in a, in a separated part in the front of the garage is where she put the, the tools uh, that she needed over there to help remodel the house after it had been trashed. All right, next she asks, when did the rent check bounce? And I think she's talking about John's last payment to Jim Melgar. Is that right? Yeah, and this is kind of confusing too. Liz had wrote an email to Nikoesi saying that the last rent check bounced and kind of filling him in on all this stuff. So then Nick then writes the email to Curazal telling him you need to check into this guy. We've we've done more research on him. There was this um Ebony was living there, tells him about Claudia. Uh and in some of those emails, he says that John had bounced the last rent check to Jim back in November. But that was a misreading of Liz's email. It wasn't, as she said, she didn't word it quite right. But the, because the way her email to Nick read it, it could go either way where the rent check was bounced. But she said what actually happened was the bounced rent check happened to her. And that was in uh, end of January, beginning of February, when she was trying to get him to pay to get caught up on the rent. He had, they had like an account where John could deposit checks to pay the rent. And he went into the the bank and deposited the check, so it showed up in the account that the rent had been paid. And then a couple of days later, they get notice that the check bounced and it was taken back out of the account. It didn't clear. Uh, so that happened to Liz, and it was after that when she calls him again, and he says, "Oh, we just we're just we just moved out. We're moving out." All right. This next question comes from Azul. Azul writes, "Very long shot, but I'd like to know if the blood-like substance on the wall was tested." Probably not, because why would they, if they didn't really question John or interview the right Claudia? So they did take some swabs, and the swabs that they took came back as uh, not containing DNA or blood. But there's some there's some questions there, too. So what I'm told is they went through the house, and they swabbed like some spots on the garage door and a couple places in the house, and they did, they did send those out to a lab to run them through DNA testing, but... I think what I think it was Liz had said that they didn't swab the actual stains that were what she thought were blood stains on the wall, um, but she's not entirely sure about that either. So I mean, it's possible that that's just those are ketchup stains splattered all over the wall. We don't know. And it was of course months and months and months before Carl's all went out there. 
But from my understanding, they didn't swab where the big red splatters were on the wall that looked like blood. They swabbed some other areas for DNA. I think they were swabbing, like, the tools or they were swabbing um, uh, some of the items that were left behind in the garage. But whatever they did swab when they sent away for, t- for testing, it came back that it was, in fact, not blood and there was no DNA in it. Alexis says, do we know anything about what happened to John and Claudia after they moved out of the apartment? Any other run-ins with the law? Are they still together? Are they still living in the area? As far as I know, there's been no other run-ins with the law, nothing that's come up on the searches that I've done. As far as if they're together or if they're living together, uh, it does not appear so, but I don't know. I mean, I haven't stalked these people to the point of knowing you know, what their relationships are. I can just look at where they're living. And they do not appear to be living together. So I I have no indication that the two of them are still together. Haley asks, how do we know that Claudia is connected to Siniad and the Colombian crime family? What's the connection? Well, there's some sources that I can't divulge into too deeply. But what I can tell you is Claudia is very close friends with people who are very close friends with just about Siniad's entire family, related to some of them, friends with some of them. So that's, that's I can't get much deeper into it than that, but, the, but, the, but that's the connection. We know for certain that, that Claudia has relationships with people who are all tightly interwoven into Siniad and all of her family. And again, I, I, as far as on that topic, I want to make clear too, you know, as, we're, as I told you guys last week, what we're doing here in the alternate suspect part where we're doing the new investigation is I'm just doing what can be pretty boring legwork. And I got a lot of people helping me. Liz is, of course, helping me a ton. We have other listeners that are helping and doing a lot of research that don't want to be named. But it's it's just a lot of reading and searching. And I can't exactly talk about all of that stuff on the podcast. So And, and so what's happening here, I want to make clear that I'm not trying to suggest that because of this connection that... Claudia killed Jim or that John killed Jim. We're just trying to start to connect dots. If you literally can imagine what we have in our in our office, you know, our investigation board and like what you've seen on TV, photos, okay, so here's Siniad. Is there a link between Siniad and Jim? And then you start looking at, at Jim's outer circle and you start looking at Claudia's outer circle, then you find that the two interconnect. So at that point it becomes, okay, is it possible? That based on the financial issues with John and Claudia or whatever it is that, you know, here's a hundred percent completely made up. I'm not even saying this is a hypothesis. I agree with it, but it's just as an example, they've got money. Claudia is, I don't know, she's at a barbecue with all of the, all of these people and they're talking about they're going to, you know, they, they need to rob someone, get a, find some big score, whatever it is. And they get to talking and John's like, well, you know, my landlord, he's, he, he's got money and I know that he does whatever. And so that could be the connection. Well, where does he live? And they kind of point him in that direction. And for that, they get maybe some of the money from whatever they steal. Like, like those are the, the types of connections that we could see here. Or it could be nothing. But all we're trying to do is show how all of this is, in fact, connected. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. All right, and she follows up with, has Sandy's defense team tried to investigate John or Claudia? Yeah, they have. I mean, her original attorney is the one that brought all of this to the attention of the police department uh, to show directly to Sean Corazal. But since then, I don't know what else is there to do because, you know, we don't have nobody has subpoena power at this point to pull them in to do an interview or anything. There's no evidence. What we're talking about is, is intriguing and it could lead to what may be a connection later. But as far as actual evidence of these people having anything to do with the murder, there's nothing there. I mean, we're in the, still in the beginning stages of trying to see if there is a connection there, if these people should be persons of interest or suspect. But you can imagine walking into a courtroom and being, you know, we want a subpoena, we want a, a warrant to bring this person in and interview them because this renter had this girlfriend who knows a person who it knows all these people, and one of these people is a woman who was convicted of a different home invasion nine months earlier where she was caught over in the Kingwood area. And so we think this person's a suspect. I mean, that's that's beyond super weak. That's just for us, it's just the beginning stages of our investigation. So there's not a lot that can be done until we start getting some some DNA hits and continue to investigate and hopefully get some tips in, which we're starting to get some tips in from the, the reward fund. Tara says, is there any logical explanation as to how the police could have potentially interviewed the wrong Claudia? Even if they only had a name, it seems like it would have taken more time to track down someone with the same name from the same neighborhood than to just ask John for her info. Well, I mean, the explanation is just apathy and laziness. They didn't care. So if you look at the timing, he wasn't, um, Claudia wasn't interviewed until months after John was interviewed. And John's interview, he doesn't say anything about Claudia whatsoever. And as you heard in that interview, he's also, he's all over the place about who was living there and he doesn't remember his nephew's name and he doesn't, I mean, it's just all over. But the one person he doesn't mention is Claudia living there. So I I don't know. I mean, if you, if you, like when I first did a background check for Claudia with her last name, you know, there's four or five of them that pop up in the, in the Houston area of various ages. And it it seems that what he did was just grab the first one and go interview her. And I mean, it's just absolutely pathetic. I mean, he's, hey, did you live at this house? Nope. Have you ever lived at the house? Nope. I've lived here for 18 years. Okie dokie. Have a nice day. It doesn't, it doesn't occur to him that he's got the wrong person, that maybe it's a different Claudia. I, I don't know how he ended up interviewing that one, but we know for certain that it was the wrong Claudia at this point. All right, next from Wendell, we have several points that he wants to discuss. Right, like, so I've got Wendell's post in front of me, so I'll just kind of walk through them because it's kind of long. First, he wants to know if we can cross-reference what John said about the move-out and vandalism with what Liz remembers. Yeah, so John says that when he moved out, now that, what did he say, there were some vandals that came in afterwards. But if you listen to, and actually Wendell made a really good post on the fan page, uh, where he, because Wendell really likes to study linguistics about... Um, how John was wording certain things. For me, I'm just like marking boxes and trying to see how logical points add up. And he's saying he moved out after Thanksgiving. And then remember, it's a month later when Jim is killed. And it's a month after that when Liz contacts him. 
And so he's saying, I moved out way before any of this happened. And then he's also saying that he was dealing with the vandalism and he's trying to explain away the vandalism. So it's hard to even say exactly what John says because he flip-flopped his story 20 times during those interviews. What actually happened from Liz is that uh, about a month after dad was dead, she starts going through paperwork. She contacts John. He hadn't been paying rent for several months. He needs to catch up on his rent or he needs to get out. Uh, that's when John tells her, oh, well, Jim said I could stay here for free because I'm having these financial problems. And Liz is like, well, I've got this paper here where he was filing saying, if you don't pay rent, you're going to be evicted. And he said, well, let me pay you. He then deposited the check. She thought it was okay. And of course, Liz is dealing with all kinds of other stuff. So she's not entirely focused on this. Uh, and then she gets notice from the bank that that rent check bounced. And then she calls him up again. Then he's, I think, I think it's through like a text message even. He said, oh, well, we moved out now. So we're gone. So that happened in, in end of January, early February. Uh, but according to John, he was gone in uh, November. And then, of course, John's story flip-flops with, uh, you know, it was Ebony left stuff in there and she needed to come back. But I don't think she did. But then I pay people to come clean up. But then... They didn't clean up, but then there was vandalisms, and then and then it was just one thing after another. Then he ends with, uh, we, we cleaned the place up, and that was the end of it. So John's story, I don't think we can compare John's story to anything, because his story's all over the place, but that's what actually happened. And let me move through the rest of Wendell's post here. I think I covered some of it. How much time elapsed between when Liz was notified, John left, and the family checked the house and found the vandalism. It wasn't far. That was So, so once John said that he left, Liz then, I think within a week or two, went to go check the house. So again, we're talking February at this point. That's when she found the all the vandalism in the house. And that's when she called the police to come out there. And of course, it wasn't until months later when they actually did. Wendell wants to know, had John given any indication that he was in fact leaving before Liz was officially notified? No. So as far as she knew, he was trying to catch up on his rent. That's why he made that one deposit, but then the check bounced. So her first indication that he was leaving was after that check bounced when she called him again to see what was going on with the check. And that's when he said we left. Wendell also wants to know at what point did Liz discuss the vandalism with John and does his recollection of that conversation match hers? I don't know what his recollection of that conversation was. All we have is what you guys heard in this week's episode. Uh, but that happened, uh, you know, all, all in that same time frame. So he says he's going to pay. He pays. The check bounces. She calls him again. He says we moved out. She goes in to check the house and finds it vandalized, calls him, and he says, oh, I didn't do all that. There was just some cupboard doors that were off when we left. And so all that happened in that same time frame, like between end of January, early February. And then Wendell says, I know that Sandy's team spoke with Ebony. What did she say about all this? Is it true that she had to come and get her stuff out, as John said? Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the whole thing with Ebony happened months before any of this. You know, She moved out in, looks like, winter of 2012. And then it was in June of 2012, so we're talking six months before Jim was killed, when Ebony had had enough of, of whatever was going on with the property there, and the vandalism was happening in the house, and Ebony filed a criminal mischief complaint way back then. So the fact that you know John is saying, well, he left after Thanksgiving, which isn't true, he was still there after that, but whenever that happened, that essentially to me, when I'm, when I'm listening to John, what I'm hearing is he, and his whole concern could just be the vandalism and how he left the property. It could have nothing to do with Jim's murder. But he's clearly trying to distance himself and he's trying to shift blame. Basically, he's saying, 
hey, I cleaned it up, but it's Ebony's fault, or it's, you know, my, my mother and baby's mama who went in to clean the house. It's their fault for not cleaning it right, but I cleaned it, and it was Vandal's fault that came in and did it. So he's just he's just throwing blame around all over the place, but we know, based on police records, that Ebony was out way, way before any of this went down. Crystal says, is there any evidence that John actually had a trucking company? So that's an interesting story as well. Uh, in the the background checks of John, it does list that he owned a couple of different trucking companies. But in the the background checks that I've looked at, it actually says, like, I don't remember if it says the words fictitious company, but essentially they look like, so there's, he's got a trucking company like in his son's name. He had one in his name. Uh, it, it says that they're somehow like fictitious, like he had the companies, but maybe wasn't doing anything with them. Could just be errors in the, the background software that we're using, but um, it does not look like he had a thriving trucking company. It looks like he had started companies, either started legit companies that didn't work out or the the companies didn't really exist at all, that there were some kind of shelters or uh, there's a lot of different reasons to have fictitious companies. But But I don't really know for certain if he did have an actual trucking company. I know that he had businesses registered to his name Uh, that seem to have been not 100% legit. All right, and Stephanie says, has there been any attempts made to show Sandy a photo array of women, including one of Cinead, to see if this is in fact the woman she recalls in the doorway? Yeah, Sandy has been shown some photos, and two of the people that she said she can't rule out as the person she saw in the bathroom that night, one of them was Cinead, and another one was Claudia. But Sandy has said with both that in, in Claudia's is, um, that's documented in the police reports and one of the supplements from the uh, emails from Sandy's attorney, Nicoessi. But uh, with both of them, she said, yeah, they, they both, and actually they both look very similar to each other. They're both young, Hispanic females, similar length hair. They look similar enough to where Sandy said, they, both of them, look like they could have been the woman, but I can't say that they were the woman in the bathroom. This next one's from Karen. John stated he didn't see Jim often, but also stated he saw Jim when he came by to pick up the rent, so he saw Jim at least once a month. He also stated he last saw Jim a couple months before November, but he last paid rent two months prior to November. So how was he paying the rent prior to November? Did he pay in cash? No, like as I said earlier, he typically, they had like a... um, an account where John could just deposit money into. He could do it electronically or he could go in and deposit a check into it or however he wanted to do it. And then the Melgars could then withdraw the money out of that account. So that's how it was normally done. But then on occasion, Jim would have to go get a check from him. So usually that was happening when uh, he wasn't paying his rent on time. He wasn't getting it when he was supposed to. And then he would have to like physically go to the house and pick up a check from John. So, but as far as I know, he never paid in cash. Aaron says, are there pictures of the rental house to show the vandalism and possible bloodstains? There are. Uh, if you're not on our social media, um, uh, both on Instagram and Twitter and actually also on Facebook, uh, we've been putting together little kind of promo videos for each episode, and there's a couple of pictures there of it. Uh, but what I didn't get to last week, this has been uh, a crazy week, and as you'll see, this Sunday's episode coming up is, is a short one. We're recovering another alternate suspect. Uh, because I had to make this trip where I'm in, I'm actually in LA right now. We're rushed basically trying to get all this stuff done. I actually forgot to send the photos to Katie to get them on the website. I'm going to do that. By the time you hear this episode, those photos should be up. But yeah, we have 
a whole uh, slew of photos of the vandalism that was taken by Liz when she went back into the house. So we'll get those up. Nicole says, It seems that vandalizing the rental home belonging to a person you just killed would be very risky, an obvious lead for police to look into for the murder. Do you think the rental house vandalism is just a distraction? I do, yeah. I'm not, I'm not in any way saying, I don't think it's just a distraction, but I'm not in any way saying that the vandalism in the house has to do with Jim's murder. Uh, it's more to the point of, as we're looking at the credibility of these witnesses, it's just another indicator that John's not telling the truth and that Curazal is not following up on the lead. So I, I don't think one's connected to the other at all. I, even the stab marks on the wall uh, and the potential bloodstains on the wall, you know, I don't, I, I don't see how those connect at all to Jim's murder. It's just a matter that, uh, of fact that when he's being interviewed, he's claiming this didn't happen. Uh, when it in fact did happen is why it's, it's, it's more why it's relevant. It just has to do with John's credibility. Kristen says, I understand your stance on the DNA database situation and the quote, if you have nothing to hide, hide nothing, end quote, mindset. But what if you're in a situation where law enforcement is less than honest? What if they, quote, find your DNA at a scene? You've made it easy access to let them find you. They could start at who they think did it and work backwards. That whole thing makes me nervous. What are your thoughts on less than honest law enforcement having access? That's a problem regardless of the genealogy database. I mean, that's that's some pretty serious, really, really deep corruption you're talking about if law enforcement is plant. We're talking now about planting evidence. We're planting DNA at a, at a scene. And, you know, like what, what Kristen had said there about, you know, what if they just find your DNA at the scene? Now you've made it easier for them to find you. Well, the thing is, they'd have to find you to get your DNA to put it at the scene. You know, they can't just, just punch in certain numbers. No one knows what your DNA is uh, unless they actually have it. So, you know, I, I don't think that I'm not saying that's not a valid argument. I mean, I think that's extremely rare. I think that, you know, 99 percent of cops are great cops doing a great job. You know, there's a one percent out there that are corrupt in one way or another. They're human beings, so you can't expect all of them to be just great people. But that's a whole nother level of corruption when you're talking about planting DNA evidence to try to frame someone for a crime. But in that case, I don't think that argument so much applies to the genealogy database, because if they have your your DNA somehow in order to plant it there, so then they must have access to you so they could just as easily plant DNA there and then, and then ask for a warrant to get your DNA to compare it to it. You know, they wouldn't need the DNA da- database or the genealogy database to do that. All right, this next one's a theory, and it comes from good friend of the show, Zach Weaver. Zach writes, in episode 39, Organized Criminals, one of the articles Bob read states that they used weapons like knives and BB guns during the commission of these crimes. Clearly, a BB gun isn't an effective weapon, but companies produce extremely realistic-looking BB guns that could be mistaken for a real gun. They were using these realistic BB guns strictly for intimidation. If these are the same people involved in Jamie's murder, this would explain why he was stabbed. When Jamie fought back, the BB gun was worthless, so they had to use the knife. This would answer the question, if they had a gun, why would they use the knife? What are your thoughts on Zach's theory, Bob? I think it's brilliant. Zach actually mentioned this to me over beers in a campfire this weekend. And he said he was going to write it in for the follow-up, but, you know, he, the listeners know that, you know, we're friends, we work together, so, you know, he didn't want to clog up the feed. But I thought it's a brilliant... I, t- I told him, go ahead and do it, because that's a brilliant theory, or analysis even, and I hadn't really thought about it. But, yeah, those articles with all of these 
other, um, the, the home invasions and the burglaries and the Colombian kind of organized criminals, that that was their MO, that they would, they would rob people, they would hold people up, they would threaten people with knives and BB guns. And of course, I knew that BB guns were worthless to do that, but it didn't really occur to me. We get, then get into a situation like we have with Jim, where a lot of people have been saying, you know, if they had guns, you know, the people in the Kingwood home invasion had guns. So if they had guns, why would they use a knife on Jim? But that's, it's, it's brilliant and it's, it's simple and it makes a ton of sense that if those guns weren't real guns, if they were BB guns, as has been documented in other crimes, then, as Zach said, they're strictly used for intimidation. They're not intended to do any harm. They're just intended to control your victims. And so, in Jim's case, if you're you know holding him at BB gunpoint, and he decides to start fighting back, well, now you've got a problem because you don't have a real weapon. The only real weapon you have is the knife. So, I think it's a brilliant theory, and I think it makes a lot of sense, and it could go a long way into explaining what happened to Jim Melgar. Listener Pamela says, "Just wondering if you have any updates on the reward posters." Where did you end up distributing them around Houston? Were you able to air the information on the local radio or TV stations? Have you had any calls yet? If so, are you able to share anything? What will happen with the money if you don't get any pertinent information? Okay, so going through all of this, the reward posters, we've had listeners in Houston that have been distributing them. Uh, they've started, they've, several hundred have already been passed out. They've started in the A-Leaf area. We've worked on, you know, areas that we find where there were some potential there where maybe the people that were involved in Jim's murder might have lived. Um, and then have started working in concentric circles out from there. Uh, I've also been doing mailings. You know, we have, you know, we, you go through lists of people of interest, people that may be connected, people that may know someone who may know someone. And so I've been doing direct mailings, uh, from our offices to a lot of a lot of people on that list and then we're working right now with um we we haven't done the radio of course we had michael hall put out the texas monthly article that was shared all over the place uh and we haven't put out the radio advertisement yet we decided that was going to be the best place to spend money for advertisement was probably on the radio uh but that's a complicated process so i've been working with a rep from iheart media who um, they have both streaming service they they have they sell advertisement both for streaming services and also for terrestrial radio and we think we're going to go with the terrestrial radio but you're looking at either you know the 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 cost depends a lot on how long of a campaign you have how many times a day you're airing it do you want a 30 second ad or a 60 second ad and of course we had in order to cram the right information and the number to call in 30 seconds that's extremely difficult and it's, you can't just do it one time. So, you know, so we can't run a radio ad that runs one time that says, hey, we're looking for the murder of Jim Melgar. If you have any information on this, there's a $20,000 reward call. Here's the number or the tip line. You know, that'll eat up 30 seconds. And then if they hear it once, they're not going to hear it. So it's got to be repeated kind of over and over again. So I, I've got quotes to do that, but then it's which stations do we want to go to? And, you know, do we want to do it? There's a lot of um, Spanish-speaking stations in Houston, and there's a lot of English-speaking stations in Houston. And so I think we're leading towards putting it out first through some of the Spanish-speaking stations. And then and then we may come back and, and do it again and the English-speaking stations and see how that goes. But so there's just a lot going into that. I'm working with a rep right now to get that decided. And then, of course, we've got to record and produce the advertisement and then put it out there. We're looking at doing it like it'd be like twice a day for about six weeks. 
that the program will run. That's going to cost us. Well, that was, that was going to cost us about 10 grand. Our budget for that piece of it is about six grand. So we got to tighten that up a little bit. Um, so we're continuing to work on that as, as we speak. As far as, so what will happen to the money if we don't get any pertinent information, as was put on the GoFundMe when the donations came in, that this is becoming the Truth and Justice Reward Fund, that we're putting this out as a $20,000 reward for Jim Melgar. As long as Jim's case is still open, that first $20,000 is staying set aside only for the reward fund for Jim and Sandy's case. If this case is solved and the tip isn't paid out. So say it's solved in a different way. Kathleen Zellner runs some DNA. They solve the case has nothing to do with the reward fund. Then that reward fund would, would maintain the truth and justice reward fund, but we would use it for other cases. And we'll continue to use that account and fund for other cases too. You know, if we put out reward funds for other ones, it'll go in, but that all accounting wise gets earmarked this 20,000. So say the account gets up to 50. For other things, there'll still always be that 20000 that is used for Jim and Sandy's case until it is resolved. And then again, if it doesn't get used for that case, it'll, it'll continue to be used as a reward fund, but we'll move it towards other cases wherever it's deemed necessary. But this particular round of donations that were put in there, including a large chunk that was put in by Liz Rose, is specifically used for Jim and Sandy's case. All right, and our last question comes from Alexandra. Not episode-related, but are you going to be at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago this July? You know, I don't know yet. I'm I'm hoping to get there. I'm obviously not going to be a contributor because I haven't been able to commit to it. So that is put together by Lisa Strawn, who is a listener of our show and a friend of mine and lover to death. And she's done an amazing job putting this thing together. She's came to me, obviously, several times if I and asked me if I can go. But the hard part about that for me is summertime is really difficult for me to commit to anything. I have a 13-year-old girl that plays travel softball. I've got an 8-year-old boy that plays baseball. I've got kids that go to, you know, my 14-year-old son that does a lot of, you know, band camps and things like that. I just, I have a lot happening in the summer. So I have, I wasn't able to commit in time to whether or not I'm be able to make it or not. I still don't know right now what my schedule is going to be. So I am hoping to go to True Crime Podcast Festival. It's in Chicago, which is only about 90 minutes from me, so it'll be an easy trip. But at this point, I'm not 100% certain. I will, however, Mike, and I guess we can close on this because we are, the day this drops, we are one week away from CrimeCon, the other uh, true crime festival that I, that I will be at. CrimeCon starts next Friday in New Orleans. So hopefully we'll see a lot of you there, or I will. Mike's not going to make it, but Becky and I will be there. Uh, we're arriving on Thursday night next week to, for the CrimeCon Festival down in New Orleans. Also, I just got an email right before we recorded this. For those of you that weren't able to get tickets or aren't able to make the trip, CrimeCon just announced that they are doing some live streaming. So I think you can buy like virtual passes and you can live stream some of the events and you can download on demand a lot of the different sessions that are there to kind of show you what's, what's happening. So. If you can't go to CrimeCon, but you want to see what's going on there, you can certainly go to CrimeCon's website and set yourself up for the live streams. But with all that being said, I hope this turned out great for you guys. I have to go in and get to work. Sunday's episode, as I mentioned, was re- actually recorded on Memorial Day. It's, it's shortened to the point, but it's covering another alternate suspect. So make sure you tune into that this Sunday, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks, everybody.
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. You want me to give a little synopsis, like he broke down, or do you want me to just keep on going with the questions? <laughs> <laughs> this, you, you do you know just do an intro mike what are you doing <laughs> you're killing <laughs> all right like this is your friday follow-up for season six episode 40 the renters where bob uh bob explained i don't know what did i talk about <laughs> i'm blushing bob <laughs> you're bl- I'm, bl- I'm blushing <laughs> i like it <laughs> blushing <laughs> where we learned about the Dang, your dogs are barking. They're out. Shoot. Did you did you tell back no, your I didn't, dogs I didn't inside? Do that. Hang on, I'll tell it right now. Stand by one. This is a good start, you know. A little bumpy, but we're used to bumpy. Big right, difference between bumpy. Only the big difference between bumpy and rocky. Right.